This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church, located in Mequon, Wisconsin. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please visit our website, myabc.church. We are looking forward to this fall and the new things that God's going to do through the opportunity that we're going to have on Sunday mornings to all be uh, unified in the same scripture. It's going to be fun to see how families from toddlers to teenagers to uh, old folks like us to, to just be uh, just wrapped in God's word and just unified together. Great, uh, great things await us. Uh, this year, uh, the Graham family has two kids in school. So Sawyer, our three-year-old, is in 3K. And uh, I want us to see him as a mentor this year, okay? He is our wise counselor because when his first day of 3K, he must have had so much anticipation for what was going to happen. He took everything in and went home and took a six-hour nap, five and a half, six hours. For the last two hours, we were trying to wake him up. So uh, he is your role model for uh, just a handsome guy. Man, he is your role model for the tenacity in which we want you to show up next week to uh, start our, our Sunday school and ABF and uh, Sunday morning time together. So we look forward to that. Well, each and every one of us is on a faith journey. Um, sometimes our faith is misplaced. We think that we have and have have the ability to have confidence in our own decision-making, and sometimes we, we get it right through the, the presence and spirit of God that allows us to have faith in Him. But that's what we're going to be looking at today as we dive into Scripture. We're going to be looking at the life of a person who had an incredible faith journey, who experienced the extremest of highs and the, the lowest of lows uh, along the way. But uh, in order to understand and make sure that this is personal for us, I want to encourage you to think about, is there something other than the person of Jesus Christ that you've had your faith resting in? Is there something about your position at work or your family that really serves as a, as a, a prop or a crutch uh, in order for your faith to fully develop? Is there something that we have misplaced Jesus Christ with? The other thing about faith is it's sometimes it's difficult to measure. How do you know from one week to another that you have grown in your faith? How do you know from one season to another that your faith is in fact increasing? We're not really supposed to compare our faith to other people because the God's uh, work in their life is strictly individual and we can't allow uh, ourselves to take comfort in the faith of somebody else. We are called as individuals to have faith in Christ. So, and also, we're not supposed to create any hierarchy when it comes to tr things that might prop up our faith, like church attendance or number of hours doing this or that. Our faith has to be solely on our knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. I found this quote from an article written by Focus on the Family, and it says, faith is only as strong as a thing in which it's anchored to. Indeed, a person might be full of faith even if she doesn't feel it. She might be willing to act in faith, to love an enemy, to protect the weak, to respect a grumpy old teacher. I added the word old. Um, simply because she doesn't believe, simply because she believes what God says is true, even if her emotions and reasonings do not compel the action. So if we need to think of our faith in this way, what is more secure than the unlimited, unchanging God of the universe? How could we ever go through a day, a minute, an hour of our lives without having our faith fully resting on a God that can provide for us all that we need? He is the one that is all-knowing, all-loving. He's the one who created the universe, and he created each one of us. 
in order to better understand the, 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 the depth of faith that the Apostle Peter has experienced, that's who we're going to be looking at uh, um, Second Peter today, in order to understand where he's coming from and what he's all endured, we're going to take time and look at three uh, lessons from his life. There's going to be times that we're bringing up that he didn't have faith in Christ, that he took his eye off the prize and uh, leaned on his own understanding. And there's other times where he showed tremendous faith in the, the person of Jesus Christ, and he was richly rewarded for it. So the first passage of Scripture, if you would like to turn there, it'll also be on the screen, is Matthew 16, verses 21 through 23. It's getting to be the end time of uh, Jesus' earthly ministry, and he started to prepare his disciples for the inevitable. He was going to leave them. He was going to be crucified, and he was going to leave them on their own. Um, we know that later the Holy Spirit was promised to them, but this was drastic and completely shocking news for the disciples. And Peter didn't exactly respond in a way that was faith enduring. Verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned to him and said, Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, and you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but the mere, but merely human concerns. Somewhere in uh, Peter's faith journey and understanding that he gave up everything in his livelihood to follow Jesus Christ, he never could fathom the point that somehow death was going to enter the picture. He couldn't understand that somehow death wasn't final. In his mind, death was final, and he couldn't understand that God cannot and will not be bound by anything let alone death. The very reason that he came was to conquer death. And in Peter's mind, this just could not compute to something that he uh, could understand. He was very short-sighted, and Christ had to remind him not to lean on his own understanding. And I don't know if in your life, but in my life, there's many times that I have leaned on my own understanding, and it has led me astray and led to paths of, uh, of pain. Has your short-sightedness ever caused you to make a rash decision where if you were simply patient and waiting on the Lord, he would have offered a solution that was far better that would have removed you from experiencing the pain of uh, enduring going ahead on your own understanding? Our next story is a story, I'm not going to tell you where it's at because we kind of all know just from the first verses that we read, but it demonstrates a great faith moment and then the depths of a bad faith moment for Peter in one thing. So you tell me where this passage is, I'll tell you where it's found, but you tell me what story this is. It starts with this, Jesus sends the disciples to the other side of the lake. Anybody know that passage? What's the story? Peter and Jesus walking on water. Exactly. Okay, somehow in our, our modern context, we have minimal, that's a word there, minimalized the effects and the drasticness of the storm. We have lost track that these were professional sales, uh, sailors out on the ocean, fishermen that have spent years and years out there, and they were scared out of their 
out of their minds. But, uh, and it's easy for us to look down our noses on them and, oh, I can't believe you had such little faith. Do you think Jesus was really going to put you all in the boat and send you to your graves? Like, that would not ring, read well in the papers in the, the Galilee Gazette. Jesus sends his disciples to their death. Of course the, he's going to come and save them somehow. But there they find themselves in the middle of the, the, middle of the, the sea, and the storm is raging. And in verse 27, we see that Jesus meets them in the midst of their storm. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Lord, if it is you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the winds, he was afraid and began to sink and cried out loud, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? We have to recognize that one part of this passage is that sometimes our faith is irrational, that Jesus is so, um, that when we have our eyes focused on faith, he might be calling us to do things that don't compute in our own mind. The most rational thing to do in the midst of this story is recognize that Jesus came into the storm, extend your arm to Jesus. Peter should have extended your arm to Jesus. And Jesus, please get in the boat. Please save us. Recognize his power. It still would have been a great demonstration of Peter's faith. He invited Jesus into his problems and asked him to take care of it. But Peter stood, or Jesus stood at a distance because he knew this was going to be a faith moment for all the disciples. And Peter was willing to look beyond his problems, look past the storm and winds and waters that were raging around him and he knew the boat was no longer the safest option for him, that even being on the water, the stormy waters, but next to Jesus was the safest and best place for him to be. He computed in his head, the only place that I want to be is next to my Lord and Savior. So what happens? Peter steps out of the boat and onto the water. Step one, a step of faith. Step two, a step of faith. Three, four, we don't know how many. He continues to have faith. But then a whiff of fear blows through the wind and it be, he begins to sink because he recognizes the power of the storm around him and he loses sight of the power of the person that he was able to take step one, step two, step three with. And I think in our lives, in the midst of, in the, midst of the storms that we face, sometimes we've been able to follow Christ obediently for step one step two, step three, but something about step four is more difficult, more challenging. Maybe we're asked to give something up that we're really not re willing to give up. Maybe we're have to, are asked to concede something, or we're asked to go and uh, ask forgiveness from somebody else, and these things can be huge barriers for us. And this happens only when we take our eye off of the person of Jesus who's calling us by faith to be obedient to him. When we take our eyes off of him, then, then the storm can enter the periphery of our vision, and we can then again begin to sink into our sin. I don't know what it is that's causing you to plateau or stumble in your faith or whatever it is, but ask Christ for the strength this week, today, to take the next step towards healing in that matter. The last example that we have is from Luke 5. This is the very beginning of uh, Jesus' ministry, the first time he meets Peter. And the story starts with Jesus inconveniencing Peter by asking him if he can use his boat as a floating platform to teach from. Now, Peter was inconvenienced because he had been fishing all night. According to the text, he had already put the boat away for the day and were 
tending to their nets, and undoubtedly the only thing that they were looking forward to was a good meal and some good rest because they were probably gonna go out the next night and fish all night. On top of this, he said it was a very unsuccessful fishing trip. How many of you ever been on an unsuccessful fishing trip? Boy, those are fun. Good times. So, so the last thing that Peter probably felt like doing was uh, to serve as a floating stage for this sermon to be preached. But the story picks up in verse 4. When he had finished speaking, when Jesus had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Oh, can you just hear Peter go, really? I'm a professional fisherman. I've, I've been out here all night. I, it hasn't worked all night. What makes it think that it's going to work today? But let's look at the faith that we hear come through his response. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and we haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. We know how this story ends. They hauled in the biggest load of fish ever. They had to call over their friends and neighbors to uh, help haul the fish to shore. And when they did, Jesus asked them to follow him, to become the disciples, to become fishers of men. And they gave up everything, turned away from their business, and followed Jesus Christ. Now this is a major story and faith is displayed everywhere in this passage. We could learn from this passage that faith is not always convenient. Faith is sometimes hard work. Faith is trusting in someone else's plans, in this case Jesus. Faith is patience. Faith is obedience. Faith is costly. Faith requires sacrifice at times. But I think we need to make sure that we don't overlook the key words in this passage and that was found in Simon's, uh, in Peter's uh, um, response to Jesus. Because you say so. He didn't feel like it, but in his calculated professional opinion, he didn't want to go fishing, but he knew who Jesus was, and because he said so, he let down the nets. Because you say so, faith is difficult for us all to live, but I think we all are called to a because he says so faith. Jesus calls us to cast all our cares upon him, but so many of us are prone to worry. He says that we're more valuable than the sparrow and he provides everything for their well-being, but still we worry about our families and how to provide for them. Jesus stood before Satan himself and said, man should not live by bread alone, but the very word that flows from the heart of God. And yet we nibble and pick at God's word when it's convenient for us or it's useful to us. Husbands were called to love our wives as Christ loved the church but sometimes we don't feel that's convenient or we have the energy. Some, because he says so, faith is needed in our homes, in our lives, at our workplace. Jesus proclaimed that he was gonna return for us and store, and we should store up treasures in heaven where he will bring us to, but we spend every waking moment seeking our felt needs to be met here and create a heaven out of this broken world. A little because he says so faith would go a long way in uh, helping us see the grand life that he's called us to live, the life that he empowers us to live through his divine presence. So we know that Peter's journey continued from that point on. He followed Jesus. He was his right-hand man. He was able to see, uh, see Christ clearly through the Mount of Transfiguration. He was able to be there at, 
uh, when Christ was arrested, and all these things, moments of great faith, moments of fa almost faithlessness, but God was faithful to him and arrived to him and set him apart as a leader amongst all the apostles. Later in the book of Acts, he preached the first sermon really recorded that after the Holy Spirit had come upon the men and 3,000 people gave their hearts to Jesus Christ, understanding their sin and understanding their need for a savior. Peter had some amazing moments of faith and we now are going to visit his, some of his last moments of faith as he's recognized that his journey is going to be coming to an end. The last chapter of his life, the pen is already in hand and it's being written. Uh, he's under persecution, he's under arrest, he's not in a great place, but he takes every effort out of faith to make sure to encourage us and all of his readers to, to spur on our faith to new heights. So if you could turn to Second Peter chapter one, and we're gonna be starting in verse one. How amazing it is that his last efforts, his last words were that of which to be such an encouragement to us. We don't know a lot about the audience that Peter was writing to. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of speculation and guess, but we know that the theme that he was addressing was the issue of Gnosticism. Gnosticism is a, is a belief system that's somewhere within the heart of man, not outside of in the person of Christ, but within the heart of man, we can tune into our own inner spark and it allows us to uh, elevate ourselves from sin. Not, uh, not very good. One commentary put it this way. Um, contrary to the message of salvation through Christ alone, the Gnostic Jesus brings a message of self-redemption. Man only needs to examine his inner spark to find the knowledge needed to free himself from his material body and to reach God. This alleged purity of heart is exact opposite of what is stated in Jeremiah 17.9. The heart is deceitful, uh, deceitful than all else and is desperately sick, who can understand it? Just on the surface, like many heresies, this lie may have started with just a small little, um, a, sm a small little lie planted by Satan, and it began to grow out of control, and people started to believe that there was some special knowledge within us that was able to separate us from our sins, and we could somehow arrive just through proper thinking, arrive perfectly on the other side and acceptable to God, and it totally dismisses the person of Jesus Christ and ultimately the cross of Jesus Christ. Very, very dangerous. Like many heresies, it's easy to see that this is once again human effort in order to re re retain control over our minds, our thoughts, and our beliefs. Ultimately, as humans' effort to main control, maintain control over our eternity and the salvation of our very souls. Now, let's ponder this idea. If some reason Gnosticism was right and Jesus was just a sign boy, he was just a little errand boy to point at the, the possibility of eternal life that came through right thinking, would have he been willing to go to such lengths of allow himself to be arrested, let alone leave heaven? Let's start with that. Would he really have left the Father's side just to to do this, there's no way he would have endured the, the cross that he did in, if salvation could somehow be obtained outside of himself. So Simon Peter addressing this right from the start, he introduces himself, Simon Peter, verse one, a servant of the apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who, to those who through righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received 
a faith as precious as ours. Now, I spent, I, I almost have a doctoral level uh, thesis that I've germinated this week on a comprehensive and complete definition of the word precious, and I'm going to put that on the screen for you. There it is. So, yeah, it is the most in-depth research study ever, but it illustrates a point for us. What would we need to add to my precious Nora to make her more perfect? What could we add? If you have something, don't say it, because <laughs> you're wrong. <laughs> See, what, they were, what he was trying to understand is the gospel itself, the message of Jesus Christ leaving heaven, leaving his perfect place and coming here to this broken world for our sake. The message so precious does not need anything added to it. If you try to add anything to it, you actually take away from it. So Peter addresses this right out of the gate. All humanity is on equal playing field. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and it is only through his righteousness that we can be saved. Grace and peace be ours in abundance through the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, through God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. He continues to state that grace and peace will be multiplied in us because of our knowledge of who Jesus is and what he did. There is no special knowledge that we can obtain, obtain from within. It all happens when we fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith, and we're willing to look at the, even the smallest little thing that might subvert us from what Christ is trying to do in our lives. We try to dismantle any lies before they take root so that we don't take comfort in anything that would be outside of the person of Christ. In the next verses, Peter lays out uh, a list of, um, of or he, in the next verses, uh, he lays out how our faith then can be increased in this, this knowledge. Let's look at verses three and four. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us a very great and precious promise so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption from this world caused by evil desires. And all God's people said, whew, right? I mean, look at that, all the stuff that we're facing in this world around us, and this passage is telling us that he has given us everything we need for a life and a knowledge of him, and a life that's godly. It's for his goodness, for his glory. He's given us his precious promise so that we may participate in divine nature even now, even in our broken state, he offers this to us because we have been remade through the gospel of Jesus Christ. This passage is a huge relief to all of us that may think that somehow we have to bring something to the table, that if, or if, if only we were a little bit better of a person, God could start using us. If we only didn't make that mistake so many years ago, or if we came from a different family, then we could make some real kingdom impact. This shatters all of those arguments. This helps us see that it is only through his divine power that we get to participate in the kingdom of God and there's nothing that we bring to the table. Step two, 
Step two in this is we need to recognize that because of this new reality, the divine nature that he's given to us, it doesn't remove us from the life that we're called to live. We can't just uh, hide away. We're, we're, we're called to confront and uh, live our lives, but we can do that now because of his divine nature and overcome everything that faces us in a godly manner. This is all possible because of the divine nature that he shares with us. It's almost like we have joined in cooperation with God. We're in a co-op with him. Now, it's a very lopsided co-op, but that seems to be his pattern in life. Think back to the early days when Jesus was calling his disciples. Who did, where did he go to call his disciples? Did he go to churches? Did he go to the local uh, educational facilities to find the best and brightest? No, he showed up at a shoreline and he recruited some fishermen. He went over to a dirty tax collector booth and he recruited a tax collector and he said, are you ready to change hearts for eternity? Um, and this is kind of how he, he does it. This lopsided co-op, God brings his divine nature, we bring our fallen nature that's prone to sin and frailty and somehow he's okay with it. Let's go with it. In the following verses, he then lays out the pathway, Peter lays out the pathway for us to uh, instill uh, this divine nature into our mode of operation so that when we face the storms of life, when the challenges arise, we can do that in a godly manner. Now it's important that when we come to uh, any list to make sure that we don't just glaze over it. Uh, it's sometimes easy to have these things um, uh, almost look like a checklist, like at a grocery store. Okay, I got them all, let's go, we're done. But this is something that P Peter is laying out that we are to live by every day, every hour, every minute. Every situation that we face should be uh, faced through the lens of these things, knowing that when we are responding through the divine nature that he gives us, these are the ways that we are to respond. A few weeks ago, we sat around the campfire with the, as the senior high group was out in... Um, Baraboo, Wisconsin, for a, a wilderness trip, uh, rock climbing and all sorts of fun stuff. We talked about as we face things on earth, as spirit-filled believers, the only, the only responses that we have are the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Faithfulness is in there. I'll get it right. Uh, but those are the only responses that we are allowed to have. If we respond to any situation in the world outside of that, we are responding outside of God's divine nature. And if you think about it, we go, oh man, that's really hard. We know that Jesus was tempted in every way, but yet he remained without sin. And Jesus wasn't just dealt like the easy Sunday school answers everywhere he went. Everywhere he went, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, were trying to trip him up by throwing him into no-win situations. And Jesus continually honored God by responding through love and joy and peace and patience. And this list that we're going to look at today is no different. So let's turn our attention to verse 5. For this reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measures, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that he has been cleansed from their past." 
if we just look at each of these uh, items on this list briefly, just to give a little bit of background and understand the emphasis that Peter was trying to convey. When he speaks of goodness, he really is talking about the idea of excellence. Do we pursue everything in our lives with a sense of excellence uh, in how we manage them? Do we manage our families, our work, our friendships, our finances with the idea of excellence in mind? The idea here is far from perfectionism. Perfectionism is a human lie that somehow we're capable of perfecting all the, the details of our lives. If perfectionism cannot enter into our thoughts, but when we, when we operate under the divine nature, it looks like excellence. Human nature leads to perfectionism. Divine nature leads to excellence. It's really the idea, are we engaged in our lives at the heart level, or are we just simply going through the motions of life and thinking that, okay, in this moment, God can't use me? Do we go to work thinking that God's not going to use me to encourage one of our coworkers? Are we, do, we, do, we go, uh, do we go to the store expecting that maybe God could use us to simply smile at somebody um, to, uh, to brighten their day? Um, I, I, I know I told him, but he probably wouldn't believe me, but the reason I chose between one of three colleges, because I walked through two colleges, nobody said hi to me. I walked through another college and somebody just simply said, hey, how are you? And I thought, you know, if somebody's willing to say hi to me, this is a pretty cool place. And look, you know, I already vetted the schools for theology and all that stuff, so that was all a place. But the difference there for the college, just think of the dollar amount I was willing to spend elsewhere, but because someone said, hi, my dollars went somewhere else. I don't know why the dollars doesn't matter, but a simple gesture is how God can use a person to steer somebody uh, into relationship and, and better knowledge of him. Pursuing excellence in everything we do is how God empowers us to reveal his goodness to the world around us. Knowledge. If faith is only as strong as the thing that, is, that it is anchored to, we know that we have a faith in a limitless God. So the reason that we may be dormant in our faith or stagnant in our faith is probably because there's an issue within ourselves. Usually it is due to a lack of knowledge who God is, and that causes us to become disinterested or discouraged in our faith journey. Ask somebody to journey with you if this is a season that you're in currently. Ask somebody to help you and share their stories of how they had to reignite their faith in trusting completely in God. We have to understand that there is a big difference to about knowing God and a knowledge of who he is. If I asked all of you to say, do you know this celebrity or do you know this famous athlete? You'd all say, yeah, we know who that person is. But do you really have a knowledge of the person? And that's what we're supposed to mine is a knowledge of who God is. We find that in scripture. We find that in prayer. We find that in community with other believers around us to encourage us to have a full picture of who the person of Jesus Christ is and what he offers us. We need to have this increasing measure so that our intimacy can grow very deep with God. Self-control. Usually this gets brought up in the idea of, okay, we gotta control our tongues and we've gotta control, control our portions that we put on our plates. And there's many other things, but really the heart of this passage is dealing with sin. Why is it that there's a place in our hearts even after we've accepted the divine nature where we allow sin to live? There's a quote that is uh, tied to Aristotle, but it's recognized that has been changed through the years. And it says this, sinners sinning is not what bothers me, 
sinners willing to sin is what does. The sin is a battle of the will and oftentimes we feel that some reason we hang on to sin in our lives because we think it has something to offer us. It offers us pleasure, it offers us validation, it offers us a sense of pride or accomplishment. Sometimes sin simply is a measure in which we use to punish ourselves for something we cannot uh, lay at the foot of the cross and forgive ourselves for. Sometimes our sin is what we do to punish others in our lives when we feel that God hasn't done his job in punishing them, which is a really terrible theology as well. But when it comes down to sin, the end never justifies the means. The reason that you cling on to sin is a lie from Satan and it has nothing to offer you. We need to ask the God who fills every void that joins us in every storm to fill those voids so that there's not the vacuum that, uh, that is created that usually leads us down the pathway of sin. We need to go before the Lord and say, thy will be done and understand that within my own strength, my own will, I'll choose sin every time because for some reason I believe it offers me something. The truth of scripture, the truth of the cross is he is sufficient and it is his will that needs to be done in our lives. He gives that to us through his divine nature. Perseverance. We all know the real struggles that uh, can be faced in the midst of uh, going through life here. Uh, we can see that God is standing arms open wide to receive Peter in the midst of his storm and I ask that you would turn to Christ in the middle of your storm and go to where he's at. I have to admit that I feel completely inadequate because it's, it's almost laughable how unbelievably blessed and uh, suffer free or free from suffering my life has been so far. I've sat across the table from students who have lost, uh, had a tremendous loss and it's a loss that I have never experienced in myself and somehow I'm supposed to have adequate words to say to them, I still am speechless. But I think for all of us, if we're enduring any storm, no matter how big or small, what Peter lays out for us is a pathway to healing, a pathway to understand that in God, nothing is ever lost, that he has been, he has reclaimed, um, uh, he has reclaimed all. And I just trust that this passage of scripture can be uh, a real source of healing for anyone who's going through such a storm. I hope that it's a source of healing for families that are going through hardship. Godliness. I believe I've partially quoted Hebrews 12 several times, but to say the whole verse, uh, that we are to keep our eyes fixed on the prize, the author and perfecter of our faith. If we embrace these verses fully, we can understand that it is his divine nature that he's given us, and it is out of that nature that we make all of our decisions. And when we're responding out of his nature, the only responses that are available are godly responses, are godly decisions, are godly um, our godly speech. It's really resting on his character. His character is flawless. We mentioned earlier, he was tempted in every way. He can understand, he can sympathize with our great need, but in the midst of that temptation, he remained sinless. His character is the picture of what we need to be striving for. His love is what we need to be searching out. Mutual affection. When we find ourselves in the midst of uh, uh, 
uh, a conflict with a fellow, fellow believer or somebody around us, we need to think back at the, the unity that is found in the Trinity. Where God is, there is unity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existed for all time. And we need to understand that where he is, truth will be discovered. As we navigate a conflict with somebody else, the fastest way to a solution is to commit to seeing and seeking Christ in the middle of that. If we're trying to seek our way, if we're trying to get our point across, we've missed it wholesale. Stop, start over, and ask God to be in the middle of any conflict, and he will direct you towards all truth, because in him only lies truth. Um, Lastly, we look at love. God is a God of love. True love can only flow from him, and the only thing that God hates is sin, and sin is the thing that caused us to be separated from him and broke our unity with him. It is for this very reason that he sent his beloved son to make it possible for those that have faith in him that we can uh, we can live eternally with him. Verses that are very familiar to us, uh, John 3.16, we can all quote it, and sometimes we go over it too quickly. But for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, perish but have eternal life. Now, I'm not sure where each and every one of you are at in your faith journey. Maybe there's some here that have never taken that first step out of the boat. You're still in the storm and you're looking for a solution through your own strength and you feel like you're paddling against the winds and the raging sea. I want you to know that in the area of sin in your life, there is no efforts of paddling that will ever work. Jesus was sent as a savior for, to save you from your sins and he is calling you to turn from your selfish ways and turn to him and accept his free gift of grace so you can experience the freedom from your sins. If you've never thought through this before, if you've never understood that your sin separated you from God and God through his benevolence sent his, his son to be that, that, uh, the bridge in between, there's no better time than now to place your faith in him and ask him for what's next. Ask him for what's each step of the journey and, uh, and cast your eyes upon uh, passages such as this to serve as an encouragement. In a few moments, we're going to be turning to the communion table where Jesus was explaining once again to his disciples that he was going to lay down his life. He was going to be a sacrifice for all, and he called them to simply remember him through this act, remember his sacrifice for them. So as we do that, let's quiet our hearts before the Lord in prayer, and the servers can come up at this time. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are a God that had so much love and compassion on us that when we turn our hearts away from you, you decided to send your one and only son, Jesus Christ, to be a, a ransom for our sins, to pay the ransom for our sins, to be the sacrificial lamb so that we could once again be reunited with Christ. We thank you that you were willing to send your spirit to us that indwells us, that makes the divine nature possible. Lord, how easy it is for us to doubt you and fall back into our ways of thinking we can figure this out. Lord, I pray that this year, this time, this season, and even today, that you would give us a new and restored faith to trust you in the small things and the big things. Help us not to be too quick to dismiss the sin that's in our heart, uh, but to surrender to you and help us to know uh, have a new knowledge of who you are so that we don't ever have to return to that sin again, thinking that it offers us something that you can't. 
Lord, we thank you for the reminder of the communion table, of the sacrifice that you made. And as we share together, may we be unified as a group to know your love in a new and a fresh way. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.